to the Internet of Nature podcast, your home for open and thought-provoking conversations with entrepreneurs and innovators on their technologies for building greener, healthier, and smarter cities. Hi, everyone. I'm Nadine Khalil, and welcome to a brand new episode of the Internet of Nature podcast, and also the last one of season three. This week, I'm thrilled to introduce you to Giuletta sorensen Kass. Giuletta completed her master's in resource and environmental management at Dalhousie University, during which she launched the novel research project Textatree. This project, as you can imagine, immediately caught my attention. In the project, Giuletta asks, can text messaging be used to promote relationships with nature? Her research suggests it can. Furthering her passion of connecting communities and nature, she became a forest therapy guide through the Association of Nature and Forest Therapy. Giuletta is now looking to launch her own Our Nature consulting service, in which she applies her experience to create engagement programs and projects for communities, governments, and businesses. Her project, Textatree, brilliantly shows that technology can be a way to reconnect people to nature. In essence, it literizes the promise at the center of the Internet of Nature, the ability to talk to trees on the Internet. But before we kick off, a big thank you to this season's sponsor, the International Society of Arboriculture. The ISA is a global network that uses research, technology, and education to promote the professional practice of arboriculture and the benefits of trees. ISA exists so that professionals, allied professionals, public officials, and consumers worldwide recognize the economic, environmental, and societal benefits and values of trees and their care. And we thank them for their support. As always, remember to subscribe and leave us a comment or review if you learn something new. I really hope you enjoyed this episode with Giuletta. Hey, Julieta. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, thank you for having me. Great to have you on. Um, we were just discussing before we pressed record how Peter Dunker kind of brought us together. Your master's supervisor, was it? Yeah, uh, he ended up being sort of a, a life mentor uh, kind of thing, taking me under his wing and introducing me to the world of urban forests. That is not unlike other stories that I've heard about Peter Dunkirk, because he was also the supervisor of a close friend and colleague of mine, Sophie Nidoslowski, who is now doing her PhD at UBC in urban forestry. Yeah, he, he has a whole, I think, whole tribe of people that he has brought into the forestry world and set us on our way. So you'll, you'll probably hear a lot of stories like that. It's funny whenever I mention that, oh yeah, my supervisor is uh, Dr. Dunker. There's always someone who has a story about him in in some context. It's it's, it's always fun, right, right, right. And uh, for for those of us listening and don't know who we're talking about, uh, Dr. Dunker is a professor at Dalhousie University, where you did your masters. Yeah, yeah. And um, before we jump into what you did your masters on and the really cool project that came out of it, um, do you want to just briefly introduce yourself? Yeah. Hi there, my name is Juletta Sorensen-Kass. I am a mom, I'm a environmental consultant, and I'm the creator of Textatree. And that's sort of the, the fun project that I get to talk about today and sort of what has happened since then. That was uh, two years ago. And so a few things have changed since then, but there's also, I think, a lot more to explore. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, let's let's dive right in. What What is Textatree? So Text2Tree started out, it was meant to be a, ma a master's project. And apologies to anyone in the background if you hear my birds. <laughs> it's ambiance. Yes. This is, this <laughs> those are not sound effects. No, no. Those are my, my two Indian ringneck parakeets. Um, because everything needs to be 100% in my world. We don't go halfway. <laughs> no, so no, no. Um, we wanted to do a project. We were looking at nature connection and urban forests and ultimately looking at things like climate change and we were noticing there's a disconnect between nature and people and in particular in cities a lot of people find in that when they live in urban areas they uh, often report in studies that they don't feel particularly close to nature and I think a lot of us can anecdotally relate to that 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 seems like it would make sense 
Um, and at least 80% of Canadians now live in urban centers. So that's really concerning when you're thinking that 80% of people live in areas where they're not feeling particularly connected to nature. And that leads to all sorts of things. There's, there's uh, environmental justice uh, consequences to that. There's mental health consequences. But there's also climate change. If you're not connected to the world around you, you're not going to fight and engage to try to change things and preserve it. Um, and so I was actually at a conference with Dr. Dunker and uh, someone, a speaker from Melbourne came up and was talking about a project that was launched where they were trying to basically use citizen science to take care of their trees better. So someone could email them and say, hey, this tree with this code, this number needs to be watered or this tree ha has a, a loose limb on it that needs to be tidied up or whatever the case may be. Um, and people did that, but they also started writing letters. For those interested in that project, I had Yvonne Lynch on in the first season of this podcast about the email a tree campaign. Yes. Oh, good. Okay. So everyone's familiar with this. So I was listening to this person and I thought it was amazing. So when I came back, I was just talking with my, my fellow students and telling them how incredible this experience was. And it just, it just happened. And I just said, imagine if you could text a tree. And literally that was, that was the moment that was the, oh my gosh, is this a thing? So after class, I, I went to Peter Dunker with this wild idea. And I basically said, you know, do you think we could do this? And it was funny because his response was something along the lines of, yeah, that's crazy. We should do it. And that was, that was sort of how everything, everything got going. Um, that that's the response you want from your supervisor <laughs> yeah exactly you think oh that's crazy let's do this so we teamed up with the public gardens uh and people might be familiar with that i mean halifax the public gardens is kind of one of the places that you go to when i was a kid we went there so it was pretty cool to come back as an adult and uh we set up a program where you could come to the gardens and there were 15 trees that you could send a text message to and they would reply. Now, obviously they weren't replying. We had volunteers who took on the persona of the trees and would talk back to you. And the whole idea was that humans nowadays often use texting as a form of relationship building. It's how we maintain relationships. And for many people, it's how they start relationships. Yeah. I mean, we've got uh, even apps like, like Bumble, for example, you start a relationship over text message and many of them can be very successful relationships. And so I was thinking maybe part of the reason why people are struggling with uh, nature connection isn't that they don't want those connections anymore. Mm -hmm. It's that the way we form relationships is changing and the tools we use are changing. And our younger generations may be a little less familiar with some of the processes that previous generations went through to connect with nature. So maybe we can try to use one of these tools to spark that again. And uh, so, yeah, the whole idea was if you make friends over text, maybe you could make friends with a tree over text. And we had nearly 3000 people participate over two months. And so then we, of course, you have to do the research side. You have to do, you have to do the coding and the processing and analyzing what people said. And ultimately, yeah, it looked like people did form new relationships or deepen previous relationships. And remarkably enough, we were a little concerned that people might zoom in on their phone. Um, a number of people reported looking up from their phone, actually noticing trees when they were walking around again. So it was, it was an absolutely incredible experience, but it was one of those things where when someone sits down and says, what did you hope to accomplish? you have a myriad of things in your mind that you could potentially accomplish. Really first and foremost was, can this work? Will people do this? I think that it would be cool to talk to a tree, but I'll go into the woods and talk to a tree. I don't, I don't need any help. I'll hug a tree any day. So we wanted to see, you know, what normal people do. And uh, that, so that was the extraordinary thing is it turns out there are far fewer normal people than we thought, because there's a ton of folks that think it's a great idea to text a tree and have no qualms about it. 
That's incredible. And the the project got a ton of media attention, I feel like as well, right? It was picked up by quite a number of outlets. It did. It was, I think it was just, it was one of those poppy news stories. It was weird enough to catch your interest, but it's also ended up being a happy story because turns out lots of people did want that connection. And there were amazing stories come up, coming out of this. And I actually just finished writing a book about the personal experience of what it was like doing this and, and becoming a tree and, and being that for someone. And it was at times a, a really moving experience, sometimes a, a difficult experience because we were holding space for people representing trees and allowing them to say whatever they wanted to say or needed to say, but trying to do so as a tree. And some of the, it, it was some of the messages that were sent to trees were, were, I would say profound. And so it was really hmm. interesting as a person knowing that those messages weren't for you. You were just holding space for that to take place, for that relationship to take place. And that was what was incredible about using the technology of text messaging and of using Zendesk, which was the, the application we used, because that way we were able to create a space for those relationships to form, for those processes to take place without necessarily needing to be involved ourselves because it wasn't about us. They weren't talking to us. They were, they were talking to the trees. They just needed an opportunity to do that. I have so many questions, Julia, that I want to ask you. Um, maybe first, <laughs> maybe first take the listeners and the viewers um, through kind of the, what it looked like, what was the process? So you, you walked into the park and there was a tree that you could text. How, how did the whole process kind of work from start to finish from the perspective of one of the texters? Uh, yeah, so you, when you drive at the park, there's, it's, oh, it's always beautiful. It's just such, such a stunning area. And from any one of the entrances, there would be a tree within the first couple of meters. There would be this wooden sign that says, text a tree. And then there would be an English name uh, that you could understand or, or understand would be its name. And then beneath it, there would be the species name in English. But then depending on what kind of tree it was, you might also have the Mi'kmaq name for that tree or the Japanese name for that tree. And then below that, there's information about the, the study, all of the consent, and in big black letters, a phone number. And it's an invitation to text me. So you're standing there going, okay, this sounds crazy, but I've got nothing to do. So you whip out your phone, send a text message, and you initially will get another message saying, okay, this is a study. You understand what's going on. We're talking to a tree. Our volunteers will get back to you. And you'll get an automatic message from that tree letting you know that you have texted a tree and not some random person in Nicaragua. And uh, each of those messages were unique. So, for example, if you went in through the great, big, beautiful gates, uh, right at the, the, the main entrance that you think of when you go to the gardens, you would come up to an oak tree, and <laughs> he had um, quite the interesting name, um, Montgomery the Strong. He was Reginald Montgomery the Strong, and his first name was Percival. Do not call him Percy. He does not appreciate this. And using his unique voice, you would hear a message from him. And then within 24 hours, usually much sooner, you would get a, speci a specific response to whatever you had said. And that was by the tree speaker assigned to that tree. So oftentimes we were able to do it right away. Uh, many of our volunteers had little notifications on their phones or on their computers. They'd know right away that someone had talked to their tree and they would respond. So... Percival, for example, mentions in his introduction that he finds himself to be quite clever. Uh, and so we had someone respond back saying, well, how do you know you're so clever? And a couple minutes later, we had an another response say, sorry, that's my granddaughter and she thinks she's extra clever. And, and so you have these, these little conversations go back and forth and they some of them lasted weeks. Uh, some, of, some of them lasted even across countries. Someone was on a holiday and said, you know, this is my last stop in Canada before I go back to the Netherlands. And they they texted the tree throughout their journey. Hi tree, I'm on my airplane now. And it was it was it was just it was bizarre. It was wonderful. And every tree had a very different experience. So if you walked a little bit further, 
and you got to the sort of the central pond, there's a lovely little nook with benches and a number of yellow birch trees. And so that is where you would find Miss Tree Tree O'Hara, who was named after Fifi O'Hara, the famous drag queen, and equally as fabulous. And so when you would text Tree Tree, you'd get a very sassy response. Uh, and she was very pleased that you had noticed her and her shimmering bark. And she was happy to tell you anything you might need to know about the gardens. And, and so every tree had a completely different personality. And what was beautiful about it was that I didn't make those personalities. That was left to each of the speakers. So each volunteer, we called them a tree speaker, was given a tree. And we had selected sort of a few of them to choose from so that we didn't have a clump in the middle of the gardens. Uh, we wanted to have a variety of species and things like that and have them spread out. But each person developed a relationship with their tree. And I provided them with cultural and biological information about their tree, including the sex of the tree, so that they could build an understanding of who the tree was and then present that to the community. And it was just wonderful because... I never would have thought to make a sad tree. If anyone ever texted Woodrow, the American chestnut, he was a sad tree who wrote uh, haikus to people. And that would never would have occurred to me, but, but, but it worked. And you never know what someone coming into the gardens, what they need, what, what is they're looking for out of, out of a conversation with a tree, because I'm quite a peppy, upbeat type person. I am drawn to Sasha, or not Sasha, Tree Tree O'Hara. I don't know why I'm saying Sasha, but she could have been Sasha. She's Sasha. Sasha Fierce. <laughs> Fierce, she's Sasha's. Um, you know, that's that's more my personality. But the whole idea was that we wanted to make this, we wanted to make a project that was accessible for everyone. And so that means you need to have personality types that are everyone. And we also included things like alternative pronouns, like Z and Zer, or they and them because trees are not always one gender or the other or one sex and the other and how a tree identifies if they were like humans they might choose one or the other or they might choose something entirely different they might not even go binary and we wanted to introduce the idea that just like humans there is a diversity of sex and gender in trees and again the reason why we're doing that is i think it's fascinating that trees have this diversity so there's the the knowledge part but it's also a way of creating space for various communities so that everyone knows that they are safe in this community um, and that they are invited to take place in this project. They're invited to take, to take part in nature. And um, one, of, one of the reasons why I wanted to do this was because of, uh, this is sort of going on a tangent, but hey, here we are, um, was the, the issues that I became aware of, particularly of trans people and their difficulty in feeling safe in outdoor places, feeling safe in public places. And how do you expect anyone to create a lasting relationship with nature if all of their public spaces aren't safe spaces? And so we were really, really trying to find a way of communicating that this was a safe place without it being tacky and kind of, you know, hey, look, we're nice people. Look what we're doing right. and try to do something a little more meaningful. And uh, that was also why we engaged with Mi'kmaq community and the Japanese community. We can't, you know, do something for every community and diversity of people that exist in Halifax. Halifax is so beautifully diverse. But we thought maybe if we could create space and honor two groups in particular, we could communicate that everyone is welcome here and especially because the gardens are a victorian garden and there can be mm -hmm. there can there are negative connotations with that there, there is a bit of a negative history and also very rich history uh, depending on how you feel about it um but there's colonialism associated with that especially because that land was Mi'kmaq territory and it still is but it has been created into a, uh, a victorian garden and so we wanted to make sure that yes it is now a Victorian garden. However, it still has space. It still has, has um, meaning for the Indigenous people who were first here and for the new Canadians who have come here and called this place their home. Uh, and so that was why a number of the trees were selected 
that are native to Japan or have cultural significance to Japan. And a number of species were chosen that were native to Nova Scotia and to Canada and were used traditionally by the Mi'kmaq people. Wow. There's such an incredible... <laughs> there's a, there's a, there's lot, a lot there, but there, I mean, there's such an incredible diversity any way you slice it and dice it that you're kind of tackling there in a way as well. I, I have to ask, what, what, was a, what was a text or a story perhaps that, that really stuck out to you from this whole process? Well, I, so I've talked about it a couple of times um, on, in, in different interviews, and I, I really, it's because it was the most impactful one for me. So there was a, a weeping birch or beach rather a weeping beach called Miss Luna Ruby. And she's this great big canopy tree that you kind of can sneak underneath and you feel like you're in a safe little space. A few people mentioned that she looked like she needed, she must have fairies living in her uh, because of that, that feeling of warmth and safety and almost like you're entering into a different world. There's sort of a through the wardrobe Narnia experience there. Wow. And uh, I was going through the messages because I was constantly doing quality checks, but also trying to make sure that um, the volunteers were following protocol and being respectful to everyone and that they weren't in turn receiving any any flack or anything. Because, um, you know, not everyone thinks this is a brilliant idea. Sure. And um, I came across a message from um, someone who was saying that they had been having quite a difficult year and explained how they hadn't told anyone else yet, but they had just lost their baby. Mm. And it took me a really long time to be able to talk about that, to, um, to relay that this had happened, but I felt that I needed to share that this message had happened. And it went back and forth between the tree and Miss Luna didn't necessarily, didn't offer advice that the tree speaker just listened and said that she was so glad that you were able to come here and say what you needed to say and to know that she was always there. And so they went back and forth a, a number of times and this person ex, uh, explained a little bit of the complications, what they were going through. And then just, I, I can't imagine the bravery that it took. They ended the message saying that they had hope for the future that one day they were going to bring their children to play underneath of Miss Luna Ruby and that they would love her. And that was, I, I, that's when I realized that the project I was doing may, maybe actually mattered um, more than just something that was interesting or intellectual or holding space. I didn't realize what would be brought to that space. And, and little moments like that happened a number of times. But I think for me, that was the biggest wake up, especially because women's mental health is something that we, as a culture, don't do a great job at. Um, I hadn't thought that this would be an opportunity where someone could find perhaps some solace or healing and that that would be a service that we could provide or something that we could give. And um, that's sort of what I was actually thinking of earlier when I was talking about how the messages weren't for us. And I really, really felt that I was bearing witness to something going on between a tree and a person. And it had nothing to do with the, the human speaker. And um, I was just so grateful that, that I got to know that that happened, that I got to, to experience that and know that the trees in this place had that kind of healing power because now I can take that and I can tell people, listen, this is important. I can bring this research to people who may not be terribly convinced about the importance of nature connection or the importance of providing these spaces for people. And I can say to them, no, look, this happened. This is important. This is needed. And, and so it, it just gave so much weight to what we were doing um, yeah, it made it matter. It is really what it, what it came down to because this project could have just as easily been a fun gimmick. It, it really could. Um, what it came down to is what the community brought into the project made it something meaningful. And we had uh, people come and say, um, all sorts of things about, you know, I used to come here with my grandparents and, and they'd share stories about 
so a wonderful memory that they had or someone saying i'm having a really hard time but you've always been here for me through divorce through illness through everything that happens you've always been here for me and again they weren't talking to us there was no interest in the human behind it the human was just there to make the communication possible the intent was for the tree and that was that was something i'll always treasure um and so i think that was that was probably the biggest one was that vulnerability that someone was able to bring to the project and i felt so honored being a part of that that's I don't know, I'm speechless. That's incredible. I think that's, I think that just shows, as you said, to any skeptics out there who might wonder why exposure to nature is so critical, why it makes us human, why it's so important for every facet of our daily life. You only have to, to see a story like that, perhaps to be convinced. Why, why do you think it is that trees nature as a whole, but trees specifically bring this out in humans? You know, I, I actually haven't been able to find an answer to that. I have done some research and I've found in traditions across the world, there have been stories where the line between human and tree gets very blurred. Um, there are a number of Greek myths where someone becomes a tree or a tree becomes human. There are indigenous tales that talk about a similar idea. Um, we seem to identify with trees and I'm not entirely sure why, why that might be. One reason that I connected with is that trees act as a, a centerpiece for a community and they act as a home. And mm. when I became a mother, I very much, um, very much connected with that idea. It resonated with me that I am someone's home. I, I am someone's safe space. And I think we recognize that in, in a number of trees, particularly trees like Miss Luna Ruby, who have that canopy that arches down and over you, that there is a sense of being held, a, a sense of being kept safe. And I think we're drawn to that. But then also the idea that we, we see trees as communities, most of the time, you don't see a tree all by itself in the middle of the prairies where I'm initially from. And if you do, I think a lot of people sort of see a sense of significance to that. It seems lonely to them, or it seems maybe like that tree is a go-getter or whatever it might be. Because you'll, if you think about photography and iconic images, I'm sure when I mentioned a single tree in the prairies, that something popped up in your head that, that you had an image. And there's probably an emotion or a, a meaning behind that that you associate with it. And then when you think of you think of the lungs of the earth, you think of the supporting network, you think of the rainforest. When you think of birds, you might think of a treehouse. There's there's so many things that we associate with trees without even really consciously thinking about it. And I think that's because it reflects our own societies. I think we see trees reflecting mm. who we are. Um, perhaps as individuals, perhaps as societies. And then uh, the research of the network, underground network of fungi, I think has just, I think one of the reasons why that's taken the world by storm is because we go, of course, that makes sense. Of course, they're connected. Of course, they transfer nutrients. Of course, there's this, this connectivity, there's this community, because we, I think, in many cultures have already viewed them, trees, as being networks, mm -hmm. as being communities. And so I, I think there's this, this wonderful um, reflection of who we are or who we want to be, maybe. Um, and that may, might be one of the reasons. But unfortunately, I can't say that my, my research made it any clearer. I think it actually just made it harder. <laughs> I think, I think that it, it just brought more, more questions rather than answers. What, what, were, what were some of the findings? What were some of the analyses that you did on the text messages you guys got? Well, so we, we went forward thinking we had a couple of theories of, all right, why would someone talk to a tree? And one of them we thought was sort of the social media route mm. where uh, it's pretty common now, particularly with the younger generations, where media is used to amplify a, the self um, and often a um, avatar of the self. So when you create a Facebook profile, it is this groomed yeah. presentation of who you are. 
And so we thought perhaps people might want to engage with trees in the way that texting, at least in the way that you might engage with other chat services where you're able to sort of sculpt who it is you are in, a, in an attempt to find who you want to be. And so you're presenting this version of yourself. And so we thought maybe people would, especially younger people, would want to more sort of almost talk about themselves to trees um, as a way of presenting this avatar. It's a new way to do that. And then we thought that there would be a little bit of social media activity. So when we created a Facebook and an Instagram account, we thought that would be one of those things of click, take a picture of me in front of a tree. Hey, I texted a tree. Isn't that cool? Move on. Uh, you know, we, we thought it might be a bit of a click and go. And we didn't find that. Actually, we found that the majority mm. of people um, would actually text more than one person or more than one tree, but have very long conversations with them. So we were expecting hitting up all 15 trees <laughs> and doing very, very short messages. But we found that the, the most common number of trees that they'd interact with was just three, but that they'd have longer messages going on with them. And that our social media account got almost no attention. Our Facebook and Instagram was sad. There, there, was, there was no, nothing. Right. Maybe, maybe right. we should have used TikTok. I don't know. But there was very little interest there. The interest was by far, in a way, more the texting. Really? And so another one that we thought was, okay, um, who who is it that would mostly go to the gardens? Probably people who like trees already and like plants. So maybe they would want to use this service to collect information. They, they just want to use it as a, as a knowledge base. And so we expected people would ask a lot of biological mm. questions. What kind of tree are you? How long do you grow? What are you good for? What are you used for? And we did get a number of those, but almost every time. How are you useful? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's kind of what we thought. I mean, when you think of urban forest management, we think of, we think of environmental services. We think of how many tons of carbon do you take up? How much water do you store? How much soil do you keep on the ground? And we're, we're recognizing how important trees mm. are as urban or as green infrastructure, but we don't, tend to talk about the psychological or emotional part when it comes to management and when it comes to urban trees that's something you go to the to the forest for that's something you go outside of the city to do uh, and so it doesn't tend to come up exactly when we're talking about management and we're talking about cities and so we thought okay they'll probably be asking more straight line factual questions and that's often how they started and then almost without fail you'd get a question about how the tree is feeling today. Um, you'd get a question about, are they lonely? Uh, about what memories do you have? And, and very quickly, you realize that they're not that interested, or at least our participants were not that interested in this species of tree. They were interested in this individual. And that's one of the things that I had wanted to do was help people recognize trees. They're not background. They're, you know, they're not the part that you paint and then ignore and then have the interesting part at the front. They are community members. They are a part of your world. And if you connect with them, your world will be so much richer. And we weren't sure people would really buy into that or really, you know, that, that might sound a little too hippie for them. And no, they, they, we kept having people ask, what's it like to be a tree? And we thought at first they were maybe talking to the volunteer, but the, the volunteer would sort of play ignorant and um, reply as if they were the tree. And it turns out that was exactly what the participant meant over mm. and over again. They were asking the tree what it was like to be a tree, which was puzzling because you're actually asking a human and, and, and like your guess is as good as mine. I don't know what it's like to be a tree any more than you do, but they wanted a story. They, they, they wanted you to, to try mm. to, to create something that they could try to connect to. They wanted to enter this liminal experience kind of partway between make-believe and reality. And, um, so that was an entirely different experience than, than what we, or use of the service than what we thought it would be. So what we found was that at the very end of the day, the biggest interest 
um, for wanting to talk to people. And the biggest takeaway that our participants got was relationship development. That, that was what they took away, which was what I had not so secretly hoped for. But, but you don't expect that that's realistically what most people are going to want. No. Did, did you receive any, any critique in terms of, you know, to what degree is the anthropomorphizing the, you know, the idea of making, you know, non-human objects human, how much of that is, you know, working in our advantage, as I think it clearly was shown that it here was, and to what point is that actually dangerous? Do you? Think? I'm actually really good that you asked that, or really happy that you asked that question. So I was looking into, when you talk about anthropomorphism, the general definition is giving trees or giving, sorry, not trees, giving non-human entities, human <laughs> attributes or characteristics. And part of what inspired the project that I haven't had a chance even to talk about, because if you've noticed, I have a little bit of a uh, scatter plot mind rather than a linear mind. So uh, sometimes weaving everything together into a coherent. Most of the best thinkers <laughs> do, Julia. Weaving this into a coherent, straightforward story is a little bit challenging. So, so bear with me. But um, the Mi'kmaq concept of Msit Nogma, which is all our relations. And the reason why I really loved that was because in a, in a lot of Mi'kmaq tradition, the way it has been explained to me and the way that I've understood it from speaking with elders and um, reading some of some really wonderful um, insights is that everything around us, basically everything, can be considered to have its own personhood. And so there's this challenge to what in Western society we view as anthropomorphism in this indigenous view because what mm. they're saying is essentially it's not anthropomorphism to acknowledge personhood and to acknowledge um, identity because that's something that all things around us possess uh, and so i, I kind of wanted to run with that idea and so what i was trying to do rather than overlay fun human characteristics onto a tree what I was trying to explore or demonstrate was that the idea of this tree being an individual, this tree having its own history, its own experience. And so what we tried to do was really focus on things like how old is this tree? How long has it been here? How has it grown? And then extrapolate from that what its experience has been. And then we added fun things because people would ask us what their favorite color is. And uh, philosophically, I can't really give you a good answer for why we chose blue. They, 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 I, don't, I don't have a good answer for that. Um, but what we, what we wanted to do was actually challenge a little bit of the idea of anthropomorphism in that viewing trees as individuals may not be as anthropomorphic as we think it is because they do have their own lives and lived experiences. It's just not the right. same as ours and it can't be it can't be translated into human language without using human language. And uh, so I do think you need to be careful. Um, yeah. So for yeah. example, I think you need to be careful when um, there's a fine line. There's the recognition of, of the tree as an individual. And there's also the recognition that some of what you're doing is sort of, I want to say fan fiction in that you're filling in the gaps in between um, and I guess the only reason why I want to be careful with that sure. is when it comes to relationship forming, I think you can go and basically have fun. Um, as long as someone knows the limit of what we know from fact and what we're knowing, a different kind of knowing, kind of when you, you hear um, two-eyed seeing, for example, the, there's the Western science idea and then there's also indigenous ways of knowing. And as long as you know what you're doing and, and what you're participating in, I think you can, you can have a lot of success and I think you can have um, very meaningful interactions. I guess where I get concerned is when you start extending things in the name of science and saying that it is scientific when you, you can't, aren't able to, to back it up with, with evidence. Um, so for example, I can't say with any confidence that 
this tree feels pain in, in the way that I understand it, in the way that we understand it with the, within the academic community of Western science. That's not to say they don't have an experience in another way of knowing. But I think you do need to be careful in being clear in which style of knowing, in which um, sort of knowledge base you're using, because there is the risk of then mismanaging things mm -hmm. um, or crippling people without with with them not knowing kind of what where's up or down or what's reality. I think you need to be very careful because you're creating a an experience for someone that is meant to be in part imaginary. That doesn't make the experience any less real. Yeah. But you have to understand that the parameters around it do exist. And so you it's I'm not no I don't know if I'm making a a, a lot of sense. Uh, no it's tricky. No, you are. I think it I think it comes I think it just but boil it is tricky and I think it boils down to expectation management. Like as long as the expectations are clear from both sides, then no harm, no foul. Yeah, and, and I think there's there I have uh, had some people who were concerned that I was Disneyfying nature. Um in that I'm I'm creating a dialogue mm. that that doesn't exist. And I guess my argument to that would be, I think we just proved that that dialogue does exist. We're just not aware of it. That that the number of people who yeah. told us that they sit down and have yeah. conversations with these trees on a regular basis was pretty surprising. Um, so that dialogue is yeah. existing. We're we're playing. There's more people yeah, like us than yeah, you know. We're playing into it and we're creating an experience, but we're we're not claiming to know how the tree feels or or what the tree thinks in fact we're not claiming that there is a neural network that would allow them to think we are trying to be very clear about this being an emotional experience develop a relationship this is not an attempt at communicating with another species sure. this is it is scientific in the in the sense that it is a social science but it is the study of human relationships our research was not about the study of the trees mm -hmm. themselves. And so I think you need to be careful about being very clear. What is the research that you're doing and what do you think you're achieving? Because we're very aware of the fact that this tree is probably not thinking and feeling what we're thinking and feeling, but that doesn't mean something meaningful can't be made out of it. Sure. Sure. No, I think that just draws so many parallels between other guests that I've been able to have on the show. People like Bick van Dyke, who gave trees a voice by basically interviewing a bunch of her neighbors, people that lived around these trees, using their lived experiences, whether they were about poverty, gentrification, um, the increase of development, you know, all these different uh, drug use, um, all these different, you know, really kind of social issues that were going around in this neighborhood compiling those into themes and then creating a narrative based on one of those themes that combine multiple different neighbors experiences and then yeah. telling that story as if she was the tree in this immersive audio tour that people could then listen to these stories of the trees and again nobody <laughs> nobody is saying you know it, it it gives there's some artistic liberty to that nobody is saying that this tree is yes. actually that's what the tree is saying but right. it's incredible because people that have done that audio tour what she's reported is people that have done the audio tour do not look at trees the same way and that was the point being able to yes. appreciate this value that trees offer us more than just the ecosystem services, the ecological benefits that we've come to know them for. But there is a real intrinsic, innate want to be close to these beings. And that they aren't passive bystanders. We, we tend not to think of trees as active, mm. engaged, living things. And so exactly bringing that story, that narrative, you understand that the narrative is fictional. And yet the experience you have through it is real. And, and that, that I think is, is very powerful yes, and when you acknowledge those two things together. 
And then one of the things I also wanted to ask you is then using this tool of technology, what many people see as the enemy. Technology is the thing that has taken us away from nature, that has, you know, that has really created this dichotomy between us and nature is technology. Yet that is exactly the tool, whether it's a tweeting tree, a talking tree, a texting tree, an emailing tree. That's the tool that we've now that we are now using to be able to kind of reconnect these relationships. So, so what do you say to the, to the technology naysayers? Yeah. Oh, I, I see. That was one of the things that I loved about um, that you called your show internet of nature. The um, technology is a stone tool. Technology is software. Technology is an extension of who we are as humans. So there's nothing more natural or less natural about leaving a beautiful handwritten letter and tucking it into a tree or sending them a text message. And Mm. yet a lot of people who disagree with the use of technology would say, oh, well, no one is better than the other. One is more natural. What's natural about a pencil or more or less natural about a pencil than a keypad? And, and that, that's sort of the idea is that exactly what you're saying. To that specific point, Julieta, I mean, if they're writing a, a letter on paper and putting that next to a tree, that's kind of morbid in a sense. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you're next. No. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's a whole other tangent we could go there. But yeah, it's this, it's this idea that... I mean, the, we've, we've had the pros and cons of the industrial revolution, all of these things. And, and it's, it's valid to want to be cautious with the use of technology. But technology is, at the end of the day, a tool. We use tools to accomplish things. And that is our nature. That is our human nature. And so using our human nature to connect with other members of our community is as natural as it gets. And the process or the form or medium that it takes, I think, is irrelevant. Just like, you know, digital art is now being acknowledged as something where people previously didn't think that was valid art. And um, I've had some people view uh, my research um, somewhat as invalid or or silly, I would say, because it uses text messaging. And texting isn't considered, you know, a serious medium for serious scientists to seriously study. Because it's used for common everyday fun goofy things and derpy teenagers um which by the way we all were and but but why is that any less real or rational or valid than Mm. an email and and so i think it's just interesting that we sort of have these views on what is acceptable what is serious what is legitimate when it comes to science but then also what is legitimate uh when it comes to botany or when it comes to engagement with nature because there's also been people that have pushed back against things like yeah. iNaturalist um, and personally I think if we already have a bit of a pandemic of people I excuse the term uh, of people stuck to their phones then why not use those phones and redirect them because if kids aren't going outside with their seven volume textbooks to identify the flower on the ground then what, what can they do? Well, if they can use their phone, then you can get them involved and they can develop that relationship. And just because that relationship looks different than the one you did doesn't make it any less meaningful. And so that's why I, I really enjoy the, the topics that you've brought up with your podcast and just demonstrating that technology is very much not the enemy any more so than the pencil and paper were the enemy. It's just an extension of humanity. And it's natural for us to want to connect to nature with the means that we have. And personally, I think one of the reasons why we're losing connection is because the things we use, the tools we use, the way we interact with people has changed so quickly, so drastically that we're, I think some people aren't learning how to use those same tools to connect with Mm. other things. And so that's why I think it's so important that we try goofy bizarre wild projects where you let someone text a tree and see if it if it has meaning for them and it seems to no clearly um which leads me perfectly into what i want to ask you next which is which is what's next for text a tree well i'm currently on mat leave but when i come back um, i want to launch my my own consulting uh, service our nature consulting and i want to be able to offer people 
community ser services like community engagement, public engagement, and nature engagement. I want to expand on these kinds of projects. Um, I was able to do this one gratis because it was for my master's project and I received uh, quite a bit of funding, but it's not something that I can constantly do on my own. Uh, the pro program called Zendesk, which we used, costs money. The signs cost money. The time investment costs money. Um, so I'd like to be able to do this as a service where I can go to a community or a company or um, even just a, a festival, for example, and say, hi, how do you want to engage your community and how do you want to engage nature and what can we do? So a few of the ideas that I had that we could then workshop and personalize were things like story walks. So a library, for example, if you have a, a garden around the library or a forest or a path, maybe you could set something up where each tree has a passage and as you go along, they read you a story. And maybe we can mm -hmm. set it up so that it's auditory for some people who uh, have challenging challenges with reading and you want to get them, get them reading maybe with audiobooks. and you walk along and this, these trees will tell you a story. Um, I would love to see a mental health extension of something like this, where you have maybe a grandmother tree um, and you could set that up, you know, even though the trees that they have outside of hospitals or trees in schoolyards, and you could set them up so that a counselor or psychologist works through the tree and you remove a barrier that people often have when they don't want to seek counseling, when they don't want to seek the professional help that they might need. So if you have a grandmother tree and all they have to do is text and say hello to that tree, that could provide something for people who are currently prohibited by the barriers needed to get in and talk to someone. And I think COVID has demonstrated mm -hmm. that there's a lot of barriers that we weren't aware of that technology is bringing down. I mean, Zoom meetings have been incredible, especially for people in um, either situations where their uh, emotional or cognitive state prevents them from physically accessing help or because of where they are. They don't, they don't have the ability to get to those services. So I'd really like to see the, um, that the nature connection be made more prominent with these kinds of projects where you can send a text message um, and engage and start talking with someone. I would really like to do, you know, things like treasure hunts where um, you, if you have a tourist town, for example, maybe the trees can give you the clue to the next, a hint or a clue to the next place and they find the next little treasure and that's a way that they explore the town. Um, I think there's so much that that can be done. I don't think there's really any limit because once you get people texting with each other or texting with trees, now you have a relationship and there's an opportunity to explore that in so many different ways. And there's so much good that can come from that. And so those were just yes. a few of the examples that I was thinking of were um, trying to connect kids, trying to help with mental health, and then even something like tourism especially when we live in an age where you may not want to necessarily be in a group with 30 people. And maybe that's something you could explore on yeah. your own. So I'm, I'm hoping that there will be more, more interest in that. Um, and the reason why I'm making it community and nature engagement is because at the end of the day, both of those things come down to communication. Both of those things come down to relationships. And so I would really love to work with communities and find a personalized way of helping them connect with the people, well, the people that have roots and the people that have feet. Exactly, exactly, in all their different forms. Um, that's incredible. I, I wish you every bit of success in getting off the ground because it sounds like there are already some incredible ideas there and we need all of it and more uh, in order to combat all of the issues that we're facing. So, so where, can people, where can people find you online if they hear this and want to get in touch? Um, honestly, the best way right now is email. <laughs> um, am, am I able to put out my email address? Is that all right? Yeah, um, yeah, so absolutely. That, that would be jl883690 at dal.ca. Yeah, it's it's a student email address. It's very creative. It doesn't stand for anything profound. Don't worry. 
Um, it's not a it's not a phone number we can text. <laughs> no, exactly. I promise it's a real email address. I'm not sending you somewhere else. But also the uh, the website, the uh, Halifax Tree Project. That that website is launched by Dr. Peter Dunker, who we were chatting about earlier. And you can see the work that he's doing around urban forests. And you can also see more about my project. Um, and you can see sort of what's happening next. You can get a uh, copy of my book, which is free. Because again, the whole idea was just to give it back to the community and say thank you for everything you brought us. Uh, and so you can see what go what's going on there. Uh, I also do have a Facebook and Instagram account, which is at Our, Na Our Nature Consulting. Perfect. And I didn't get to ask you before, tell us a little bit more about the book project. Yeah. Um, so at the end of this, I obviously, I finished my master's degree and then I wrote a paper with a number of people and uh, including Peter Dunker, of course, and we published of course. that. Uh, so that was published in Urban Forests and Urban Greening. And after mm -hmm. that, it had just became, it became such an incredible experience personally that I wanted to write a book about it because actually after doing this project, I uh, became a urban, for urban forest, sorry, a forest therapy guide with the Association of Nature and Forest Therapy. So amazing. So I, I went and, and became a guide because this is, that's another way that I want to help people engage with nature is through forest therapy. And it, it really set me on a different path for what I wanted to do career-wise. I'm now a, a, a consultant. I work as an environmental consultant. And I, so I just, I wanted to write about this. And because a number of people were asking me, what was it like? What was it like texting and pretending to be a tree? What was it like doing this? And those were things I didn't get to say in the paper because, you know, yeah. in the report, we have to be all factual because science <laughs> yeah, and, you, and there's a there's a professionalism that you have to maintain and I really after such an emotional experience I wanted the opportunity to just pour my heart out I wanted to say what it was like I wanted to tell them the parts where I cried the parts where I was happy the parts that completely surprised me um and so I, I wrote this book and um it's really <laughs> it's very much just what I think and what I feel. So I don't know if that's interesting, but it was how this project changed me and what it was like being a tree in the Halifax Public Gardens. Um, and so that one is, again, you can find that one on uh, the Halifax Tree Project website or um, on my Instagram account. There's also the, the links for that at Our Nature Consulting. And um, I'm hoping that, that more can come from this and that we'll have more experiences that, uh, to add on to all of this. And, and what's it called, the book? Oh, the book is literally just called, sorry, good question, Text a Tree. That, that's it. Just Text a Tree. Just text a tree. Hey, keep the branding consistent. I'm all about that. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. That's awesome. So people can, uh, can find that online. And um, the last question, yeah, I guess we're already at the last question. The last question I want to ask you, Juliet, is a question that I ask all of my guests mm -hmm. who come on the show, which is what does the Internet of Nature mean to you? Yeah, I actually really like that because it is, um, it kind of reminds me of a term that we use in forest therapy, which is web of interbeing. And just mm. like we were talking about earlier, how technology is an extension of who we are, you think of the internet as being something that, that we have created, but you also think of internet as in, I mean, the, the microbial internet, you think of a web internet, you think of you, you can see very easily these parallels between things that we have created in technology and things that we've found in nature. And so I, I think it's a, a wonderful way of reminding people that our technology and the way we use it is just as natural as anything else and therefore can be a wonderful tool for engaging with what we view as the natural world. So I thought it was very, very well done, well played. Um, and yeah, I think it, it. I think it's a, another way of, of ex, expanding our idea of interbeing and interwoven um, connection. Well, cheers to that! Thanks so much for coming on, Julieta. Your work is honestly super, super inspiring, and I know the listeners and viewers will get a ton out of this. So, thank you for sharing all of your stories. Thank you, and thank you for.
big thanks to Juleta for making time to come on the show. If you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did, please go ahead and subscribe to the podcast now and leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcast. We really appreciate it and it really helps to grow our show. A big thank you to this season's sponsor, the International Society of Aboriculture. In honor of International Women's Day, ISA is featuring stories about women in the aboricultural industry throughout the month to honor their contributions to the industry. International Women's Day, March 8th, is a global day to celebrate the social, economic, cultural, and political achievements of women. To learn more about women in aboriculture, please visit ISA at www.isa-arbor.com. My conversation with Julieta marks the last episode of season three of the Internet of Nature podcast. Just like seasons one and two, it's flown by, and we appreciate everyone's really kind reviews, download, and support. Please don't hesitate to share the podcast with anyone you think might be interested in it. Your support means the world to us, and it's the best way to grow the show. It's been an honor bringing you the best and brightest entrepreneurs and innovators working to build greener and smarter cities. Don't worry, we've got a lot up our sleeves. Be sure to follow us on all channels as season four is in the works. Stay tuned for more information soon. Lastly, if you feel that any of the stories on the podcast particularly resonated with you, I'd really love to hear from you. Feel free to send me a message or comment on a post on LinkedIn or Instagram. Looking forward to hearing from you. Thank you for listening to the Internet of Nature podcast. The show is an NA Media production.